Our guest today is Silicon Valley high-tech strategy guru and marketing legend, Jeffrey Moore. Jeff is an acclaimed author, speaker, advisor, and organizational theorist. He's best known for his 1991 groundbreaking masterpiece, Crossing the Chasm. The chasm refers to the technology adoption cycle in which companies transition from early market visionary into dominant mainstream player status. Crossing the chasm means a company has successfully achieved a hyper growth trajectory and market success. Since crossing the chasm, Jeff has authored a slew of best-selling business books, cementing his status as a true thought leader. His latest book covers the spiritual side of things, The Infinite Staircase. Jeffrey also graciously endorsed Bob Bidet's award-winning book, Competing on Thought Leadership. I met Jeff in 1992 when he was promoting Inside the Tornado and had just crossed the chasm into Silicon Valley celebrity. My path crossed again with Jeff's in 2007 when I led thought leadership at global IT services purveyor Cognizant Technology Solutions. Jeff provided us with awesome insights that helped us guide our strategy on the future of work. Today's conversation will cover how Jeff evolved from academic to tech industry guru, his approach to generating and communicating big ideas, the role of thought leadership in the marketing mix, how best to get thought leadership seen and heard, and what tech and high finance companies need to do to improve their thought leadership efforts. Jeff, thanks again for joining us today. Well, my pleasure, Alan. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Jeff, you started your career as a professor of English and a Renaissance scholar. Your first work was a PhD thesis entitled Strategies for Living, an analysis of Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which was an epic poem published in 1590. Obvious question, how and why did you make the transition from academic to PR strategy consultant and later to marketing, messaging, positioning, tech strategy, and early stage capital formation thought leader. I think isn't that a traditional career path? I mean, I, I was pretty sure. So as you as you noted, my intention uh, was to become a professor of English and get tenure and write books on medieval and Renaissance literature for the you know for the rest of my career. But we were um, we were teaching in Michigan, and we realized our family needed to be in California. So uh, I we we just said we could pull up stakes and go back to, to the Bay Area. Uh, Marie was from Palo Alto. I'd gone to Stanford, so that's where we're going to end up. And there were no jobs in academics. So I said, well, I'll just I'll get a job in something. I'd heard about something called Silicon Valley. And so <laughs> I thought, well, maybe Silicon Valley would have a job or whatever. So anyway, I ended up getting a job in the software firm, originally as a kind of a training director, HR kind of person. And then I, I sort of migrated into sales. And I was very good at opening. I was not very good at closing. So that got me more out of sales toward marketing. And it turned out I was good at marketing. And then, as you point out, I joined Regis McKenna in, in 1986. And that was transformative for me because at that time, most of the great high-tech companies at one time or another came through those doors. And so you got to see a whole lot. And crossing the chasm was really sort of a synthesis of a pattern that we were seeing you know, in a number of high-tech firms, including the ones I had been in before I joined Regis, where I helped take three products into the chasm and none out. So I, Carrying this burden of product management guilt, and uh, and then I was crossing the chasm was actually sort of a redemption because it was saying, well, maybe it wasn't all your fault, Jeffrey, but maybe there was something structural going on. So, so did those early, uh, I don't want to say failures, but early challenges, is that what prompted you to really kind of think through what you needed to do and to be and to become to be successful and to meet your standards? I don't think I was thinking of myself. First of all, I was, I was, I was, they were failures. And let's just be clear, they were failures. So, and the companies went out of existence. So, I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like it was a blip. 
Uh, but that was venture, and they knew the, the venture track record at that time was still very pretty spotty, because people were dying in the chasm, almost like dying from COVID. But I was I was intellectual. I was like, what what's going on? Because at first I thought we just made mistakes, but then it was like there were too many of them, and so I was I, I was just all I wanted to do is kind of get at the path. Why is this not working? Uh, and, and so. And that's kind of been my mo my motives. I'm not particularly interested in self-promotion. I'm really interested in problem solving, particularly problems that have not yet been solved, but are like on the efficient frontier of what it would be good to solve. That's kind of where I've spent my life. And that's what makes you a great thought leader. I think you really need to think about all these things from the outside looking in, not from the inside looking out. But we'll get to that later. Your books, and this has always impressed me, your books always contain a lot of clever and thought-provoking metaphors like chasms and bowling alleys and zones and staircases. So how would, how do you do this and why? I mean, it's a very effective mechanism. It triggers a lot of thoughts. Yeah, you know, there is a, this comes from the literary criticism background. So when metaphor first came into the English language during the Renaissance, particularly, it was thought of as a decoration. You know, it's a flower that you would add to make, you know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day kind of stuff. But somewhere along the romantic movement, people said, you know, metaphor is a problem solving tool. If I compare A to B and B is something I don't understand, but A is something I do understand. Then the idea is the strategies you use for dealing with A, could you apply them to B? So the strategy you use in bowling, could you apply that to market segment development? strategy that you use for getting across the English Channel? Could you apply that to penetrating a mainstream market? And, and so the, that, the metaphor was just an attempt to say, capture the strategy in something familiar, and then see if we can't apply it to something unfamiliar. And that drives a lot of uh, creative thinking, I'm sure, on your part, and spurs a lot of interest from your audience, people who really want to understand and kind of make your imagery into their own life experiences, professionally speaking, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's important for listeners and readers to always critique the metaphor. Figure out because because in most problem-solving statements, there's a, a metaphor. It's either explicit or sometimes it's kind of hidden, but it's there. And you and you want to kind of surface that metaphor and say, do I buy into this metaphor or not? I mean, is there, is there really a chasm there? Is it really like bowling? And you should challenge it because if if it isn't, then we should throw that metaphor away and find a better one. And if it is, then then follow the logic of the metaphor to get you through a, a tough situation. Absolutely. And this is really all about big idea creation and dissemination. And as you said, really sharing your expertise and knowledge with the marketplace so that they can better their lot. And I think we believe when thought leadership is done well, it brings recognition and drives revenue. I mean, it's really fundamental to business. Well, I, think, yeah, I think so much of business is spent closer to the present. I mean, like, in the, we've got to make the quarter, we're, we're competing, we're, we're launching a product, we're, you know, we're whatever, whatever it is we're doing. And so there's an enormous amount of focus on kind of the here and the now and the tactical stuff. And I think what thought leadership is trying to provide is just simply a balancing corrective thing, which is, okay, but step back for a minute. And what the heck is going on? And because a lot of times you're plowing, you're, you're plowing the wrong field, or you're sailing in the wrong direction. You're saying as hard as you can, you're doing everything you can. And so I think that's where thought leadership can come in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you sometimes can't see the forest through the trees. And if you're doing publicly held companies, yeah. you know, when it well, is a quarter to quarter race to the finish line. And, and you and I have this huge advantage, which is we don't have anybody reporting to us. 
Mm-hmm. So we don't have people yammering at us or sending us all, you know, the five gazillion emails or trying to, you know, deal with. So we do have the luxury of being able to stand apart. Now, you got to be careful because when you have that luxury, you do see stuff that other people don't see. And if you're not careful, you'll say, well, that's because I'm smarter than them. No, you're not. You're not smarter than them. That's not true. But you do have the luxury of perspective. But you, but you need to com- you need to contribute that those lessons to the people that are executing because at the end of the day, if you don't execute, what what was the point? So execution is the ultimate point always, and thought leadership is in service to that. So how do you reality check your your big ideas? How do you make sure you're not just imbibing your own? It's uh, great. It's so, great because because I, what I love about the the model of thought leadership is okay, you write a book. So, okay, then people say, well, you should give a speech. You know, we want to, we, you wrote a book, we'll, we'll give a speech about your book. Okay, good. So you give a speech. Somebody comes up and says, that's pretty interesting. I, you should come in and give that talk to my team. Okay, so you go in and give the talk to the team. You know, we want to apply that idea. So why don't you spend some time with us applying that idea? Well, when you start applying the idea, you find out, hmm, interesting idea, had some merits, but eh, it needs some work. And, and so every time you consult, if you consult honestly and don't, try to impose your framework on the world, but bring your framework to the problem and then dig in with, with your client. And the and it, part of it is having great clients. And, and one of the luxuries you have as you get your career goes forward, initially, you'll take any client you can get. I mean, I don't care who it is. You, you're like a, a lawyer. <laughs> I don't care what he did. I, I'm, I'll represent. But eventually, as you get older, you get, to, you get to kind of pick your clients. And guys like Malcolm at, at Cognizant, you know, when I was working with you and Malcolm, that was huge fun. And I mean, really smart people. And working with Mark Benioff and working with Chilu at Microsoft. And these people are like amazing. So, so that, that's where you get a lot of it too. Uh, I, I, read, I found a quote that was attributed to you. I thought very interesting. You said, surround your disruptive core product, the thing that got you to the dance, with a whole product that solves for the target customer's problem end to end. That will keep you on the dance floor for a long time to come. So, I mean, I think that's that's so spot on, you know, found so many companies over the years, both of us, I'm sure, could speak to companies that just created architecture, you know, just talk about a lot of smoke, things that were aspirational that never came to light. But, you know, I think what you're saying here, if I if I follow it correctly, is you got to think end to end. You got to think about the client impact, the, the potential, the outcome that you can deliver, and that you've got to think it through holistically. Systematically and uh, stick with it, not not let it go before its time is is gone. How does the leadership support that? Well, it's it, well. This is actually you're kind of this was kind of where the chasm thing actually got started. What we saw with the chasm stuff is there's actually a group of customers in what we call the early market who you don't have to build the whole product for. You just bring what you have that's sort of magical to the dance, and they say, "Chat GPT, okay, this is magical." I'm going to take this and I'm going to figure out what to do with it. And, and you go, whoa, see, I'm, I'm great. And they're great. And it's all great. But most people say, well, I'm not that imaginative. I don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of expertise. I need you to bring me something about my business, not about your business. And so that's where the whole product came from. It was, it was Ted Levitt was the guy who popularized the concept of the whole product. But it was, it was that notion of, look, and particularly when you're crossing the chasm and you're just breaking into the mainstream. People don't really understand. They've heard about the technology and they're, they're kind of interested in it, but that's not what they're buying. What they're buying is I have a problem I can't solve. If you can solve, if you use this new technology thing can solve my problem, let's talk about it. But let's talk about my problem and my solution. And let's not talk about you. 
unless they said, please don't give me a demo. You know, I mean, <laughs> so it's that guy's. Now, once you have enough of those people, then the category becomes a category. And the Gartner Groups talks about the crack category. And now it's like, okay, I have budget for artificial intelligence, or I have budget for mobile apps, or I have budget for cloud computing, whatever it is. And at that point, now, now you can talk about yourself again. But there's that period of transition where you used to talk about yourself as this bright young star. And then there's this period where people are like, I don't know, you're a 20-year-old somebody. I don't, I don't care about you. And then maybe you're 30 or 40. Oh, you, you do have a reputation. It's that, it's that solution time that's very important to get yeah, through. Exactly. So can the real story be told without real customer examples of the impact that your ideas are having in the marketplace? In the early market, yes. I mean, for example, the, 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 uh, the, the knowledge, nav- I don't know if you remember the knowledge navigator ad that came out with the Apple. That was a great story. It was a horrible product, but it was, but it was a great story. And ultimately, that story was the iPhone. It was just only about 15 to 20 years to her. But, but, but the point, it, it, it was there. It, and visionaries and technology enthusiasts believe what you believe. So the sto- if the story is coherent and plausible and has you know, some basis in technological reality, so this is where demos actually do matter, then you say, okay, I can, I'm going to make a bet with you. But that's, it's, it's a very small portion of the market that's willing to do that but it can put you on the map. It can make you famous. I mean, the way that AlphaGo made machine learning when they beat the, the, the Lisa Dahl, the Go, the Go expert from Korea, that was, that was one, it wasn't even a customer really. It was just a very elaborate demo, but it was amazing. And then that, then we say, well, whoa, this machine learning thing must have some stuff. But then it's not until people like Amazon said, well, we're using it to make better customer recommendations. And then the people at Google said, well, we're doing it to place ads in a more effective way. And the cybersecurity people say, well, we're using it to catch fraud and, and to catch bad guys. And then it's like, well, maybe we all need to have machine learning and that's internet of things. And I'm, I'm glad you raised chat GPT because I was going to ask you, where do you think generative AI is in the chasm right now? And what do you think is going to occur? Well, I, I, I generative AI to me, this is like, and the Gardner Group had this thing called the hype cycle, which was very similar to, to the technology adoption life cycle. Chat GPT is like at a higher point in the hype cycle than, than almost anything I've ever seen because it is so amazing, but it is still pre-chasm. It, it, it is not, it, it is not, now, do people think it's going to cross more quickly? The thing about, the thing that's changed over the, our career is back when you and I got started, if there was a disruptive technology, it took a long, long time to sort of normalize it and internalize it and institutionalize it, like decades. Like it would take a decade for mini computers to sort of really find their feet. And it would take a decade for PCs. Yeah, you really... remember the, the year of the network that went on. The year of the land. So, so what is happening right now is because we've now had 40 years of digital absorption, we have a much richer, thicker sort of substrate base to work off. So what I think will happen is initially with ChatGPT, there'll be some very non-disruptive uses of it. People are doing with it right now. You know, they're just asking ChatGPT stuff. Um, I think the, it, it'll cross the chasm when people go, well, wait a minute, I'm going to design this into a business process as a core capability, and I'm going to use this at scale. Nobody's doing that. Well, I mean, a few visionaries are doing it in a few places, but that hasn't happened yet. Like it, love it, or despise it, generative AI is quickly moving from amusing toy to productive commercial tool. And from a thought leadership profession perspective, 
The technology has vast upside if safely and ethically applied. We see generative AI disrupting the thought leadership food chain, initially taking on rote and routine tasks in research design, data collection, and analysis. Later, once the underlying models are better customized and trained on specific data sets, be applied to higher level thought leadership work, such as argument development, writing, and data and concept visualization. Our advice, start small and supplement generative AI with human oversight. Then as you get more comfortable, gradually use generative AI to augment and extend human capacity. Generative AI offers the potential to cost and time reduce everything on your thought leadership agenda. And as such, you can do more with fewer people. Remember, Although generative AI can create human-sounding prose and generate breathtaking images, it still lacks true cognitive ability and human empathy, and it is still mistake-prone. Thought leadership done well is equal parts art, storytelling, and science, collecting foundational data and evidence. Everyone on the thought leadership team, therefore, will need to raise their games to reinforce their value, as well as to unlock generative AI's virtues and guard against its vices. One last question on that topic. Does it scare you? No, it doesn't scare me. Uh, but, but what does scare me is human beings. So, so in other words, what scares me is, is, the, is, the, is the fake news. What scares me is the, is the lack of critical thinking in the public discourse, as well as the lack of civility and, 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 and frankly, integrity. I mean, the Fox Dominion suit today, to me, is absolutely characteristically symbolic of a serious disease problem in the culture that we have to deal with. And I don't think we're gonna deal with it legally. I think we have to deal with it culturally. And, and this is where I think our educational system has got to step up. You know, there's a bunch of this educational system is getting politicized and actually exacerbating the problem. But, but, but we have to find a way to correct for that because otherwise we're just gonna be super vulnerable to all kinds of bad influences. Absolutely. Well, you've uh, actually made a nice segue to the next question that I had lined up. Uh, you spent a lot of time exploring the creation, extension, and dissolution of corporate culture. We believe that companies really can't excel at thought leadership unless they've established a strong culture of thought leadership. And by this, we mean you really need to look at yourself, your company, that is, from the outside in, as you would like your clients and prospects to perceive you. And key to conveying this is adopting core values, behaviors, beliefs that support big idea creation, and that demonstrate your unique expertise in solving the market's biggest business challenges. What's your take on culture and thought leadership and how you can grow one and, and make it so that it really can help to express your key uh, differentiators? Well, it's interesting. You know, again, if I think about the arc of, of our two careers, in the 90s, it was a very different cultural norm than there is today. So in the 80s and 90s, it was a very competitive norm. If you think about Cisco and you think about Intel and you think about Microsoft and Sun, these were very competitive companies. And the game was, we're going to beat, we're going to beat the other guy. And it was a product-centric competition. And the sales force and the Oracle sales force was famous for like, take no prisoners. And it was blood sports. <laughs> it, 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 gladiatorial. So that I called that in the in the in when I, I wrote a book I wrote a bunch about culture in a book called Living on the Fault Line. But that culture I call the competition culture. Working with a model that um, I I'd inherited from another fellow, Bill. I forgot his last name at the moment. Anyway, but then there's another culture which is coming to vogue in this deck in this century, uh, and and more exemplified by people like Satya Nadella at Microsoft and and uh, um, you know Mark to some degree. Mark is kind of an interesting. 
quite many of his sales is a little bit of both. But I think he's a collaboration culture guy at heart. And Salesforce is definitely a collaboration culture. So collaboration culture is where this really matters the most, because now thought leadership is based on what really connects our company to the world. What, why are we here? What are we in service to? And if we use that as our true north, what are our values? And so this whole thing about vision and values that, that, that begins the planning process at Salesforce is very important to get that thought leadership orientation. And then you talk about your methods and your obstacles and your measures, which are, are the, the things you do that year to achieve your vision through your values. But vision and values have become really, really important. Well, vision and values are pretty abstract, right? So this is where the thought leadership role, I think, is, is important internally, because you want to be, and particularly when you get into a complex uh, environment, which is confusing, and it's, it's kind of misty, and like with the COVID thing, or or, or, or right now we're kind of going through a downturn or a, a, certainly a pause in our, in our economic uh, growth. And we're certainly having a complete revision of interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. This is where you need to look past your headlights a little bit. And that's where thought leadership really, really can help. It's kind of like long-term investing. You know what? It's not a, you can't bet a, put 100% of your investments into something long-term. You need a portfolio that is balanced across short, medium, and long-term. But the thought leadership brings the long-term piece. Absolutely. You can't, you can't be short-sighted. You still have to think down the road of where you want to be, how you want to be received in the marketplace, and what big ideas are going to be important to your marketplace sometime in the not-too-distant future. You're absolutely right. You hit upon something that I, was again, a next question I was going to ask you about, which looks at, at both culture and organizational structure. Where do you think thought leadership should report within an organization? You know, we've We've researched it. Some say strategy, some say marketing, some say really C-level. It should be, it's, it's key to the strategy. So it should be the CEO or maybe the COO. What, what's your take on that? Well, so uh, first of all, I'm going to back up one thing. How does thought leadership pay for itself? I mean, if, you, if they're going to hire you or me and they're going to give us money because we like we like to get paid, why would they give us any money at all? What, what, how do you get any payback? And, and I think one of the things we realized is when you're in, in, in particularly in the high-tech sector, if you're trying, if there's an existing budget and you're competing for an existing budget, you don't need a lot of thought leadership. They're going to spend the money. They're either going to spend it on you or they're going to spend it on the competitor. Nobody's confused. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of man on man. But when you come to the market with a new thing like ChatGPT, there's no budget. So what thought leadership is really about at the beginning of a life cycle is why would you create budget for this new category? And you have to create the budget. And the only thing that can create that budget is thought leadership, because there is no reference. You don't have any history yet. So the only way to do it is to say, look, if you look at the structure of natural language and how it's infused every business process in the world, and you look at the capabilities of chat GPT, and you start saying, isn't there trapped value in our existing systems that this technology could release? Then trapped value is, is, is I think, a really good signal for where, where you should go. Well, that's a thought leadership. That, that entire exercise is a thought leadership exercise. Now, where should it report? It, it, first of all, I think reporting is the wrong word. So the, the problem with reporting is that's a very mainstream performance organizational management. It actually goes back to a hierarchical organization. So if you're operating in, in an existing paradigm at scale, you really do need to know where everybody reports. I mean, that, that's how you keep track of things. But thought leadership is early, typically earlier than that. It's typically in emergent situations. So it, wherever it's going to be, it's going to be a free agent. So it could be the CEO, probably not likely to be the CEO, because frankly, the CEO's got a lot on his or her plate. 
And so for them to be a thought leader, there are some, you know, obviously Elon Musk is a thought leader. I'm not sure where he's leading, but he's definitely a thought leader. <laughs> uh, but, but, most, but most CEOs are probably not necessarily. So there's some bright person in your world. And they may not be, they may not even be part of your company. Regis was, was, I think, one of Steve Jobs' favorite thought leaders. Okay, he was an independent consultant. Um, but obviously, Steve was a thought leader. So that, that he was one of those. But then he was not a particularly good manager. So that, you know, there's trade-offs in and out. But I think thought, I think if you try to if you try to package thought leadership into a departmental function, I think you're I think you're going to make a mistake. And you're going to end up having probably stuff that's too precious. Because when it's it's like the statistical analysis people. They do all this incredible analysis, but it's way too sophisticated and it takes way too long. And it's kind of not really on the mark. And that's right. the danger of if your thought leadership becomes too rarefied, too academic, too, you know, ethereal, it's not, it's not useful. Are there any examples in the marketplace of, of thought leadership you think really has worked? It really has changed minds, opened pocketbooks, opened hearts to wanting to. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, okay. So I, I, so I think, you know, I've been working with Salesforce now for 10 years, but but go back to 1999, and, and, and Mark Benioff says, no software. And you go, what, what, what are you talking about, no software? Well, you, 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 it, well it's no software. And, and it's like, what? And put it in the, in the cloud? What are you talking about? And nobody will put their software in there. Nobody's going to give their credit card over the internet to some other person. I mean, it's never going to happen, right? And, and so it was all thought leadership at that time. And then you think about you know, how the Google guy said, we're going to save every search argument. You're, What? That doesn't make it. You, there's not enough storage in the world to do that. You can't possibly afford to do that. You know, and I'm thinking teradata, and they're thinking, you know, uh, data centers made out of you know PC. They were scaling out. I was trying to scale up. I mean, what I love about this world is periodically somebody will come up with a vision, and my first reaction is always, "No way, no way, no, 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 no," because <laughs> I'm just that way. Um, but then it's like, well, no, wait a minute. Come on, listen up. What are they saying? Uh, and then, and sometimes it's baloney. I mean, I think the metaverse is, I don't know if it's baloney, but it's, but it's too early. Uh, I, crypto is probably baloney, but if, if not, it's way too early. But chat GPT is not baloney. It's, that's not baloney. You, you, you made a, an interesting point. I mean, I've, as a journalist, covered the, the tech space for many years, worked in IT services. And when I look at tech companies, you know, there are exceptions to rule. I agree. I think Salesforce does a wonderful job getting its thought leadership out there. There are other companies in the, in the cloud services application as a service space that do a great job uh, with thought leadership, but that they're the exception rather than the rule. Why do you think tech companies in particular struggle to codify, share, and maybe even compete on thought leadership? Well, I, first of all, I don't think I mean, thought leadership, again, is, is a critical strategic weapon early in the development of a category. The longer the category has been around, the less important thought leadership is. And so, and so it's, it's, it's at the front end of problem solving where it really matters. So a bunch of tech companies are, are just following. They're, they're, they're playing a different game. And by the way, it's not a stupid game. It's, it's called fast follower. I would argue that Microsoft, really prior for the first 25, 30 years of its existence, it, it was never a thought leader. It, it, didn't, it didn't invent anything, but it, but it just continually took share of everything that, that was got invented. Like Windows coming out of Xerox Park, really. Yeah, well, you look at it. They, there, was, there was Lotus 1, 2, 3, but now we have Excel. There was WordPerfect, but now we have Word. There right. was Novell Local Networks, but now we have Windows NT. 
you know, there was ne Safe Navigator. Well, now you got Windows Explorer. I mean, it just, they did it over and over and over again. They weren't using thought leadership. It was a competition culture, not a collaboration culture, but it was very powerful. You know, another sector that we look at very closely and would hope we'd see more thought leadership is uh, the VC community. I follow the VCs fairly closely. I don't see a lot of them doing great thought leadership. I mean, Kleiner Perkins has this wonderful podcast that they do. Bessemer Ventures, I get all of their thought leadership, but far and few between. Same thing in the private equity space. Don't see a lot of thought leadership there. Is, do you have any re thoughts about? Yeah, I mean, remember, what these folks, try, by, by the way, I think Martin Casado at uh, Andreessen Horowitz is as good as anybody on thought leadership. So if you want to add one, add one to your portfolio. Yeah, but they closed down Future, uh, the, the website that they had, which was, I thought, one of the best areas for finding new tech insights. Right. Well, so I, I think what's going on right now is, and, and Martin and I have had a, a bunch of exchanges because he said, you know, crossing the chasm, uh, we're, we're past that now. And I'm going, no, we're not. And it, so we were having this wonderful conversation. But his point, and I think it does relate to thought leadership and in the, in, in the investment community, is as more as technology has become so permeated, every other industry, it's no longer like the tech sec, it's, it's everywhere, that, that, that basically more and more uh, investment decisions are based on putting bigger and bigger amounts of capital to work under more and more conventional return of investment scenarios. And so it's not about thought leadership. Increasingly, it's about, it's about market dominance. We've watched the high finance sector closely, venture capital and private equity communities in particular. They've dabbled in thought leadership to various degrees of success. Andreessen Horwitz, a VC firm co-founded by Netscape browser creator Mark Andreessen has over time bet big on thought leadership. Its future.com publication, which launched in June of 2021, was truly a place to gain insights on all things tech until its untimely demise last year. What was nice about future.com for thought leadership purists was that it took a non-promotional approach. It didn't only cover topics related to areas in which Andreessen Horowitz invests. Future.com went big. It hired a full-time editorial staff and relied on paid contributors to fill its virtual space. It also tapped tech industry founders, academics, and entrepreneurs. As a result, its content was of exceptionally high quality. A16Z wanted to create a vehicle that spoke directly to tech entrepreneurs. So A16Z had a running start as a VC with a head and heart deeply immersed in thought leadership. But as VC market conditions changed, a16Z quietly killed Future.com last December. According to the publication Business Insider, A16Z shuttered Future.com because it came to the conclusion that having a separate thought leadership brand wasn't worth the effort and capital required to sustain it. We will continue to watch A16Z and others in the high finance space to see how and where they distinguish themselves with quality thought leadership. I think there was a time, and you, it's funny, I feel like you and I, I feel like like Bartles and James sitting on the porch talking about you're back in the back in the old days. There was a time when venture capitalists was anecdotal storytelling of people who had crazy ideas. And that was that was venture capital. And now that's a very, very it's a very, very small portion of the of the industry right now. I, I I'm harkening back to a conversation we had last summer when we were talking about where thought leadership should be published and where it's taken seriously. And I said, you know, something about HBR and uh, MIT management uh, review or technology review. And you said the West Coast technology uh, elite and the tech, you know, the, the VC elite don't really see them 
as as really the harbingers of really good thinking. They sold worlds, so it's past. Is this is this something new in your view, or has this always been a bias? And I, I think <laughs> that's interesting. First of all, there's two there's two issues. One is academic research doesn't lend itself to the front end of emergent things. Again, because if you think about how's it actually done, well, you go and you go to you get permission to interview the executive team at General Electric, or Clay Christensen goes and talks to the people at Intel. But you end up doing 15 or 20 interviews with people, most of whom are one to two levels down from the executive team. And, and they'll tell you, and you learn stuff, you put it together. But it's nothing like the conversations that happen with two or three or four people who are like co-CEOs or allies. It's just a different dialogue. And, and so it, it, what happens, and the other thing is that there's academic standards and publishing standards and research standards. And people will say, well, where, like people always ask me, where do you get your data from? I don't have any data. Uh, you I, get my, I get my data from all the reports that my clients give me that McKinsey did for them or that Bain did for them or the BCG. For them. And it's fabulous stuff. It's not like data is not valuable, but there's but there's a, a an, it's like the social science approach to understanding uh, social phenomena or economic phenomena. It works at scale, kind of. It doesn't really work at the emerging front end of anything. So you're just you're just better off using anecdotal signals, and then and then look any place you can get data, you should get data. And, and we're getting better at that, but but not the kind of data collection like I'm going to do a survey. Surveys suck. They 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 just it's not the right way to do it. Oh, that's a it's an interesting thought. So where do you think whether they're emergent or early stage technology companies or more mature companies, where should they aspire to get their big ideas heard and seen? Should it be on their own websites or should it be in prestigious publications? Is there a mix that you would advocate for? So I think you work, you know, you're the journalist. I think you work backwards from your target audience. So, so where are, you know, I, I, where are the water holes where the antelopes are? <laughs> let's go to, let's go to, let's go there if we're looking for antelopes. And I think the second thing is with your thought leadership, I'm really interested. I, I think there's a core concept, which I use the phrase trapped value for, which is trapped value, I think is like the, well, it's like oil in an oil well, except that's, now we're trying to fix the climate. That's maybe not as good a metaphor as it used to be. But but the point about it is every system has a level of efficiency, and then therefore it has a level of inefficiency. And so every system at some point holds itself back. It could be better, but there's a bottleneck. And so, and so when I think about thought leadership, I think about people being able to step back far enough to say, where's the bottleneck? And then, and then you're looking at the intersection of here's the trap value. Here's the emerging technologies. Where do they intersect? Where, where's the point of intersection? Where will chat GPT change what first when? So, you know, for example, I'm on the board of a company called WorkFusion. So WorkFusion is an AI machine learning kind of company. It was doing projects. It did projects for Disney, did projects for various people. It's decided to focus on financial compliance challenges because the whole that whole world's gotten very, very uh, massive. It's personal. complex. It's much easier for a bot to go through than an individual. Sure. Exactly. And, and, and so it's all of a sudden you say there's a huge amount of trap value and we've been outsourcing it to low cost labor and that's, that's not working. So here's this ability to say, no, we can read and analyze and do all, all the wonderful stuff that read AI could do on our podcast right now, if you turn it on and say, okay, we can do that. 
so so there was so that notion of where's the trap value and then how does our technology release it and then having a dialogue with the customer saying you should consider redirecting your budget so in addition to thought leadership creating budget when you're crossing the chasm what thought leadership does the budget is there but it's being spent unproductively in the old way and thought leadership says why don't you consider redirecting at least a portion of that budget to the new way. And by the way, when you do this, we're convinced you're going to end up putting it all in the new way, but but let's at least get started. And I think thought leadership really helps people go, oh, help me get my head around that again, because they have to go now and convince their colleagues to move budget. Moving budget isn't easy. If you don't have good, strong thought leadership kind of support, it's hard to create a coalition of the willing in your own enterprise to move budget because everybody wants to keep the budget where it is. One thing you said before I wanted to respond to, and I, 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 I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. I agree with you that people, that just, if they're just going to recite the data, that's not helpful to anybody. I agree. I think you've got to figure out a way, to your point, to look at it through a, a social science lens, through qualitative interviews that help to take the data that you've captured and bring it to life through real stories and real insights that come from the marketplace, come from where the rubber meets the road. So I do agree with you there. Well, it's interesting, I and mean, what you and I are uniting against, I, and what I was pushing back against is data without stories, to me, doesn't work. So, but, but by the way, I'm a literature major, so be careful. But, 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 but to me, narratives, and I love the word narratives, but it really just means story. But, but narratives are what give people a sense of purpose. It's, what, it's, it's how you get people aligned and motivated. It, it's how you create budget. You tell a, well, think about how a venture capital pitch works. Somebody walks into an office and tells a story. There's, you know, they tell a story, and the and the investors listen to the story and they poke at the at the storyteller, and then maybe there's some due diligence after the thing, and then they either invest or not invest in a story. The story is really really important. So one last question: You can write your own story here. If you had to do it over, what would you have done differently in your career? What mistakes would you have avoided? And what decisions might you have made that took your career path in a different direction? I just, I, I just was blind lucky. I mean, so first of all, uh, I mean, the, the fact that we just decided to move from the college where I was teaching in Michigan to California, that was completely, I mean, Marie, Marie was so, she, we were raising our children then without no, and she said, we have to move back to California. And then she said, do you want to come? Because she well, but she knew how committed I was to wanting to be a professor. Right. I said, yeah, I did. So, so, so that that. But in terms of mistakes, well, I'll say for the first ten years until I got to Regents, I thought I was supposed to be eventually get myself. I thought I was supposed to be a president of something. I was going to be a CEO of something eventually, because I was articulate and I would had you know I could had social skills and blah blah blah. So what I learned in those ten years is a. I am not a manager. I think I thought I was a good manager. I was a horrible manager, and I and I, I didn't actually get it until I was at Regis. And I mean, because I, I like people and I love the people that was on my team, but finally one of them just said to me, "Jeffrey, you're no fun to work for." And I was going, well, "What do you? What, what, what's the matter?" Well, you 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 never delegate. You just you always intervene. You always you, and, and I thought, oh shoot, she's right. So a hundred percent. So, so I went to my boss at that time and I said, you know, I think probably I shouldn't actually be a manager. I should be an individual contributor. And I, I looked at her face and it was like her face said, he finally got it. 
I thought I was supposed to be a salesperson. I was not a salesperson. I thought I was supposed to be a CEO. I'm not a CEO. So, but very quick there, somewhere along the line, about the time I, about the time halfway, before before I wrote Crossing the Chasm, oh, I'm an advisor. And and once from that game on, it was like, this this is my game. I, I can do this. Everything fell into a line there. That's yeah, great. It really, yeah, it was really kind of miraculous. That's wonderful. Really, thank you so much for spending your time with us and sharing your ideas and your thoughts and your context on how thought leadership could and should be used, how it can be improved, and uh, where and uh, where it shouldn't be applied. I appreciate your time, and uh, Jeff, we'll talk to you again soon. Well, thanks, Alan. Enjoyed it. As Jeff said, thought leadership is important to all companies that want to distinguish themselves in the marketplace of ideas. But where a thought leadership matters most is to emergent companies that are playing the long game and those who need to share their unique product service expertise to differentiate themselves to those who matter most, customers, prospects, and influencers. This can only be accomplished by having a strong culture of thought leadership that rewards collaborative thinking, connects vision to outcomes in a real world, and inspires individuals across the company to think outside the box. Jeff also made clear that for thought leadership to make a difference, it needs to clearly identify and explain where a company's solution unlocks trapped value. This could only work if thought leadership is delivered in a relatable and captivating way. For thought leadership to hit home, in Jeff's view, it can't all be about surveys and data recitation. Data without stories is suboptimal, he believes. Great storytelling and thought-provoking metaphors are critical to bringing a company's real-world problem-solving expertise to life. That perspective isn't surprising given Jeff's humanities and literary background. To succeed with thought leadership, companies must have their thought leadership appear where their targets reside, or as Jeff puts it, where the water antelopes gather. While Jeff has spent his career advising tech firms and the companies that finance them, his advice isn't only applicable to chic Silicon Valley startups and well-founded companies looking to quickly cross the chasm to market dominance and public offerings. These recommendations are relevant to every company that wants to compete on thought leadership, regardless of their maturity and industry sector. Thanks for joining us in Everything Thought Leadership. We hope to see you here again soon. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd left a like and share this episode with your colleagues. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Boudet TLP, for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. You can find out more about Bidet TLP at bidettlp.com.